I'll very quickly introduce myself. I'm, I'm Giles. I'm one of the uh, team here. We're going to be looking at this passage, um, Exodus 20 through uh, 23. In, in just a moment, uh, Vicky will be reading uh, part of that. Um, but first, I want to say something about the passage that we're going to read. Um, uh, l- last week, we, we learned from Exodus 19 and 20 how, um, how the Ten Commandments reveal God's character and teach uh, what, it would l- what it would look like to live uh, the good life, representing uh, God's character, loving God and loving our neighbor. And today we're going to see um, God's instructions uh, applying those commandments in everyday life. That's what the passage today is all about. It's three chapters of laws. Uh, what uh, chapter 24, verse 7 calls the book of the covenant. Now, it's a long passage, and it's also part of the Bible that many people find very difficult. So some people find these laws a bit weird and a bit irrelevant, and some people think that they're primitive and barbaric. Now, as a church, we believe that all the Bible is God's word, that it's all relevant and helpful for us, even if we find it hard. So we're going to read a section in a moment that uh, 21st century people find especially difficult. Uh, Those who aren't believers have used passages like this to attack Christianity, and many of us who are believers uh, find them hard too. Are hard to explain to our friends, hard to understand ourselves. And yet Psalm 19 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey. So before Vicky uh, comes to read, let me pray. Father God, as we come to your word now, please help us see how it reveals your character and your plan for us to live the good life. That, That we will come away today rejoicing in your wisdom and your holiness and your love and your righteousness. That we will know the sweetness and beauty of you and your word. Amen. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you you shall say to to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to to my altar, that your nakedness not be exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, 
he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as, a, as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with, as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her um, sorry, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things to her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willingly attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals and sells him, steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with a staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When, the men, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and, shall, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Do keep this passage um, open, the whole, the whole set, for pages 74 to 77, as we're going to be looking uh, at verses throughout that whole section of laws. But first, let's uh, remind ourselves of the context for these laws. God has, has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, where they've been exiles uh, for 400 years, and he's rescued them from slavery uh, for new life in the promised land. And here at, at Mount Sinai, God meets with his people. 
He's brought them to him. And now he tells them how they are to live the good life. So right from the outset, uh, God's rescue came before his people's obedience. Uh, They haven't earned their rescue, but he has chosen them so that they can represent him to others, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments, to know God's character, to love God and neighbor and represent God to others. And that's the purpose of today's passage too, the whole section. God gives his people instructions about what it will look like to live in the promised land under his rule and blessing. So it's, it's taking the principles of love God and love your neighbor, applying the Ten Commandments to everyday life. So these rules are, are primary for a particular people uh, in a particular place at a particular time. Um, it's, what, it's what we could call case law. And we can't take case law from 1500 BC and, and simply assume that we do the same thing now. Not just because the circumstances are different, but especially because we're living in the new covenant. Now, God's people then would be living together in one land, acknowledging God as king. God's people today live scattered as as exiles in many nations under secular laws. And the key difference is that between Exodus and now, Jesus has lived, died, and risen again. So let's see what we can learn from these laws, how they reveal God to us so that we can rejoice in him and his word. Now, there are many aspects of God's character we could see here, but I want to focus on four this morning, on his wisdom, his holiness, his compassion, and his justice. So first of all, his wisdom. His wisdom. Now, one of the first things that might strike you as you read the whole passage is the variety of things that it covers and how difficult it is to easily put it into categories. Sometimes there seems to be little connection between verses, or one topic crops up again later. We've got rules about altars and arguments, oxen and oaths, money lending and murder, food, fields and and festivals. Now, for them, these laws were a sweep across the whole of life. It's not exhaustive. There are more laws like this in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But it's pretty comprehensive. There's no area of life that God doesn't care about. God wants his people to obey him in all of life. Now, God's already given his law in chapter 20. The Ten Commandments show how he wants his people to live the good life, loving God and neighbor. And now now he's showing how it works out in everyday life, how those principles can be applied day to day. Now, we can't divide up the rules in in this passage neatly according to each of the Ten Commandments. They're they're sort of woven throughout the rules. And this is God's wisdom, the application of God's law in all of life. 
It's the sort of wisdom that we read about in Proverbs, how to live rightly in God's world. And it's wisdom for applying his law in that society then. So we, we can't directly apply these case laws in the completely different circumstances we live in today. Case law changes over time. Look at uh, chapter 22, verses 2 and 7. Male slaves were to be freed after six years, but different rules applied to female slaves. Forty years later, in Deuteronomy 15, the same rule applies to both. It's not a contradiction. It's case law. It's God's wisdom applied in different circumstances. Well, let's take um, chapter 21, verse 26, there on page 75. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. We don't have slaves ourselves, so we can't apply this directly. But nor, nor do we need to imagine what principle lies behind it, behind this command. Because we already know what lies behind all these commands. The principles of love God and love your neighbor. The principles of the Ten Commandments. So verse 26 shows the wrongness of causing harm to another person. It's an application of the commandment not to kill. The freeing of the slave is an application of loving your neighbor. Now what verse 26 shows us, and all the other commands here that we might think are irrelevant or, or weird, is God's wisdom in applying his law to all of life. He cares about all of life, even if it looks different in different contexts. But the reason many of us struggle with a law like this isn't just that it seems irrelevant to Bromley in 2023. It's that slavery is evil. Sure, it would be good to free the slave in verse 26, but why is there a slave in the first place? How can God give rules that accommodate slavery? Now, I could answer that by saying that slavery among the Israelites was very different from the brutal horror of the Atlantic slave trade. The verses here hint at that. Look at 21 verse 2 again. Slaves in Israel were to be freed after six years. It was a crime verse 20 and verse 26, to harm them. In Deuteronomy, it says they were to be paid daily. These rules forbade the Israelites from treating their servants like the Egyptians treated them. But although the word for slave here is the same as the word for slaves in Egypt, it is usually translated servant in the rest of the Old Testament, including God's people serving God. This same word for serve was used of, of Jacob serving Laban for seven years. So Israelite slaves were more like indentured workers. Uh, poor people could sell themselves into service for six years to escape poverty. When I was a, a student, I could have 
join the army. Um, I'd have received plenty of money while a student. But in return, I would have had to have served at least six years when I graduated. And if I didn't want to, to complete those six years, I'd have had to buy myself out, as one of my friends did, to leave the Navy early. Because if he'd just run away, he'd have gone to prison. See, I think that kind of military service is the nearest equivalent today to this Israelite slavery or servanthood. You see, I still don't think that's a sufficient answer just to show that this slavery was more humane than other slavery, that it was a more humane servanthood. Serving God and each other in love and freedom is good. Serving someone from compulsion, being forced into service because of poverty, is not what God intended. Deuteronomy 15.4 says that God does not want his people to be poor in the first place. You see, poverty and slavery are both evidence of the brokenness of our world. God has set out clearly in the Ten Commandments what the good life would look like. But our world is now full of suffering and pain. So what Exodus 21 to 23 does, it, it wisely applies God's will to a world that is full of sin. He knows our hearts are, are hard and sinful. An example is Deuteronomy 24, where case law allowed for divorce. But Jesus said in Matthew 19, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Poverty and slavery and divorce, none of them is God's ideal. None of them was intended in God's good creation. But he knows that we won't, that we can't, live sinlessly. The law cannot get rid of the sin in our hearts. These rules were not given to end sin. And so having set out what the good life is in the Ten Commandments, God, in his infinite wisdom and kindness, shows how we can begin to work that out in a world that is so broken. Even, even the messiness of these chapters hints at the messiness of our world. God is concerned with all of life, but all of life is messy. God's wisdom is about living rightly in a world that is broken. Job and Ecclesiastes do much the same thing. It's, it's what these passages here are doing. In his wisdom, God gives the Israelites rules that apply in their particular sinful context. Wisdom to help them navigate their context of slavery and poverty. To serve him in a sinful world. So he gives them rules that, that limit the harmful effects of their sinfulness. Rules which keep reminding us what God is like, that we're meant to love God and our neighbor, but that we keep failing. Rules that show us just how sinful we are and how we need more than rules 
if we're ever to obey God perfectly and live the good life. So we've thought about God's wisdom across the sweep of these three chapters. And now we're going to dig into those other aspects of God's character, his holiness, his compassion, his justice. Now, it's tricky to categorize these rules neatly, but there is a structure to it all. Sorry, previous slide. Um, Hebrew writing often has a structure of bracketing ideas. So themes aren't necessarily presented linearly, but start from the outside in. So uh, this whole section, the Book of the Covenant, begins and ends with worship. If you look at chapter 22, verses 22 to 26, it's about altars. Laws about altars, it says in the ESV. And if you skip ahead to uh, 23, verses 10 to 19, it's all about religious festivals and Sabbaths. That's the outer layer. Worshipping God. Um, The next layer in is uh, verses 21, 1 to 11, about slaves, and then 22, 21 through to 23, 9. And that last section begins and finishes with concern for strangers, sojourners. And as the ESV uh, says, it focuses on social justice. In both those sections, in green, uh, the rules don't have any punishments. But then in the middle, the red section, 21.12 to 22.20, are all criminal laws with punishments. So we're going to start in blue with um, 20.22 and then 23.10, where God tells Moses about worship, where the focus is on God's holiness. So that's our second heading, God's holiness. Now this structure that we've just looked at is not just to sort of because I'm interested in structure, because I'm a bit geeky. But the structure shows that God is most important. Everything else, our relationships with, with each other, our property, come in the context of our relationship with God. How we worship God is the beginning and end. It's, and it's, it's, it's according to his rules and not ours, because God is holy. God is holy, so they mustn't carve idols of God in 20, verse 23. They're not even to carve their altars, verse 25, because the altar is set apart, holy, for a holy God. We saw last week from chapter 19 that there's a barrier between the holy God and sinful people. So although he's come and he's revealed his character and his will for his people in the Ten Commandments, their sin still needs to be dealt with. That's why sacrifice is here, right at the beginning. Verse 24, right from the outset, sacrifice is needed, sin needs to be dealt with. And then, verse 25, God will come to his people and bless them. And then, skip to the end of the section, chapter 23, there's more about worship. About our holy God, who requires holy times, set apart for him, one day a week, set apart for rest. Three festivals a year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 15, this is chapter 23, the the harvest and the ingathering, verse 16. And then, verse 17, 
the people shall come before God. I think that's what those three commands in verses 18 and 19 are all about. Each one seems to relate to each of those three feasts. Verse 18, don't sacrifice with leaven at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 19, bring the best of the first fruits at harvest. And don't do that horrible thing that the Canaanites do with a young goat in their fertility rituals. Don't do that at your celebration of the gathering in of the final crops. Why? Because God is holy. And you're not to offer him the sort of things that the pagans do. You're to be different because God is different. You're to be holy because God is holy. That's the brackets for this whole section. All of life is based in in God's holiness and how we're to live holy lives in response to him. It's not just in the bracket, it's, it's woven throughout the section. So maybe uh, chapter 22, verse 20, don't sacrifice to any other gods. A few verses on, verse 28, don't revile God or curse your ruler. Verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me, set apart, different from the pagans in how they live. You're to be holy. Now, How do we set apart God as holy in our lives today. We don't celebrate Sabbath on Saturday, but we we can set aside a day each week for the Lord. We don't celebrate those particular feasts, but we can build into our lives regular time for God. But do we see God as this passage sees him, as the start and the finish of of all we are and do? Do we see him as utterly holy and seek daily to follow him and not simply to follow what everyone else does? There's another holiness that's clear in this passage. And that's the holiness or the sanctity of human life. Uniquely in God's creation, humans are made in God's image. We're designed to represent God to the world. And so this whole section is clear that human life is valued so much more than animal life or, or than property. So to kill a human was, was punished by death, chapter 21, verse 12. And in case anyone was in any doubt about what God thinks about the slave trade, look at verse 16. You would be executed for stealing someone and selling them. Merely injuring someone or stealing property was not a capital offence. Now, we might think that the death penalty is wrong in our society today. Remember, these are rules for God's people in God's place at that particular time. But what they show really clearly is that human life is sacred, set apart, holy. The most serious punishment is reserved only for crimes that abuse God's holiness or abuse human sanctity. We don't have the death penalty here today, but God is still holy and human life is still sacred. We're made in his image. So how do we show that we value human life as much as God does. 
Where do we stand on issues like abortion or euthanasia? On the denial of, of human dignity in the, in the modern slave trade or trafficking people for sex? And we're not all going to be activists, but we can all be prayers. Are we praying for an end to those things? God's holiness, human sanctity. If you like, God is utterly and primarily holy. We are secondarily holy in his image. And so the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and might. And we do that as we worship him in obedience. But the second command is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we'll move to our second heading, compassion. Compassion, especially for the vulnerable. That's what these passages are focusing on. That first section, chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, is about slaves. Remember those who are so poor that they have been sold into servanthood. And then in uh, chapter 22 to 23, it's mostly about sojourners, strangers, migrants. Why those two groups? Well, because Israel had been slaves and sojourners in Egypt. And they were never to treat others the way they had been treated themselves. The 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's not just about those groups. It's about others who are vulnerable too. So 22, verse 22. Don't mistreat widows and orphans. Verse 25, don't charge interest if you lend money to the poor. God cares for the vulnerable. Verse 26, for I am compassionate. It's so sad that these passages about slaves are used to attack Christianity. It's so sad when Christians are a bit embarrassed by them. They are here because... We have a God who is compassionate. He doesn't want the poor to be abused. He wants even slaves to be treated with human dignity and respect. We've already seen how God doesn't want there to be poverty or slavery, but that he knows knows our world is sinful and broken and these things will happen. So in his wisdom and compassion, he requires that the vulnerable are cared for and not abused. So these laws about slaves are so different from the way Israel's neighbors treated slaves. Ancient slavery was often horrific. People were kidnapped into slavery. Their their owners had the power of life and death. They could rape or kill them with impunity. The idea of freeing a slave after six years, chapter 21, verse 2, or in verses 18 onwards, the idea of equal punishment for killing a slave as for killing a free man, or or for freeing a slave if you'd injured them, verses 26 and 27, that would be unthinkable. But in God's eyes, slaves are not property. They're humans made in his image. They're poor. They're in need. They should be cared for and provided for. This slavery in Exodus, this servanthood, was a safety net for a poor person's welfare. Now, we might not have that system today, but there are many who are poor 
in our community? How do we care for them? How do we care for those who are poor within our church? How can we support and pray for those who are especially involved in support for the poor, like CAP? What about others who are vulnerable in our society, for refugees, the elderly, the unborn? How are we caring for them and seeking to stop their abuse? See, the way that we represent God's compassion, his heart for the vulnerable, is going to look very different here today than it did in Exodus. But we must represent it because it's his character. And he calls us to love our neighbor. He who showed us mercy expects us to show mercy to others. My last of these four headings is justice. This is the middle section, 2112 to 2220, justice. These are the criminal laws. They all have penalties attached to them. So, for example, 21 verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Beginning of chapter 22, if a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In general, the first block of rules here are about violence, killing, and injury, and then accidents with animals, and then property laws, and then finally some more capital offences. Remember, this is case law. It's applying the principles of the Ten Commandments to everyday life. And here we see lots of examples of how they were to deal with the exceptions and the ambiguities the wisdom of rules in messy situations. So in in 21 verses 28 and 29, if a bull kills someone accidentally, the owner isn't to blame, unless the bull has done it previously and the owner hadn't controlled it. It's noticeable throughout this that the only punishments are death or payment of a fine. There's no prison. There's no rehab. Punishment is either retribution or restitution. And again, some of us might find that uncomfortable. We might especially find uh, chapter 21, verse 23 difficult. Uh, If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Haven't we moved on from that? It seems unforgiving and vengeful. Didn't Jesus say we should turn the other cheek rather than take an eye for an eye? Well, firstly, these laws in Exodus are wise guidance for judges. And God still works through our legal system today to punish those who do wrong. These laws are establishing a fair judicial system that people could trust. Without that, people might take the law into their own hands and things would escalate. They might take an eye for a tooth or a head for an eye. And so, so this prevents over-punishment. But secondly, it prevents under-punishment. Crime should be punished. God is a God of justice. He cannot sweep sin under the carpet. It must be punished. So what do we do with all this? And maybe now you've seen how this 
Strange collection of case law reflects God's character, his wisdom, his holiness, compassion, and justice. How it points us to his will for us to love him and our neighbor, to represent him to those around us. And that's exciting. But maybe you're still struggling with some of the laws here that I haven't been able to explain. Please come and ask me afterwards. I would love to chat about the details of some of these if you'd like to. Because there's so much more here. But as, as, as well as pointing the Israelites to, to who God is and how he wants his people to live, these passages also point us to our saviour, Jesus. Our next slide, please. The people of Israel had been rescued from Egypt to live the good life. They said they'd obey. They said that in, in chapter 19 and tw- chapter 24, but they didn't obey. They couldn't obey. And this whole section exposes their need for a saviour. The sacrifices remind us that sin needs to be dealt with before we can enjoy relationship with God. The very fact that we need case laws with punishments shows that God knows we're going to be unable to keep his commandments. We, we won't be able to live the good life just by keeping the law. We see our lack of holiness, our lack of compassion, our injustice, The punishments here show us the the seriousness of neglecting God's holiness. That the penalty of sin is death. There's no payment, no restitution that we can make to ransom ourselves from the death penalty. These laws expose our need for a saviour and they point us to the one who did fulfil them. Jesus, who is the wisdom of God in human form, who honoured his Father and and showed compassion to all he met, who loved God and his neighbour perfectly, who showed how much deeper these laws should go, not even to hate, not even to lust, to turn the other cheek. He showed what what it looks like to live out the fullness of God's good life, obeying from the heart, in the spirit. And he took the punishment that we deserved. He paid the penalty of death. And he gives us his life in his spirit so that we can be changed, so that we can live the good life, So that we can look forward to the day when we will have no other God before God. When we won't take his name in vain. When we won't murder, we won't steal. And it will be wonderful. I prayed at the beginning that we'd come away from this passage rejoicing in God's wisdom, his love and his righteousness. That we would know the sweetness and beauty of his word. All of this passage is fulfilled in Jesus. 
He's our wisdom and our righteousness. He's, he's God's holy living word who in his compassion died for us so that we can live the good life. Let's rejoice in him. Amen.